Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 2. God's placement. I don't know about you, but I regularly think that surely this was not God's design. He did not place this at this place, at this time, because the only thing this is doing is frustrating me. And yet I think what the text is teaching tonight is that God indeed did place us all at the right place and at the right time to accomplish his good purpose. And while that might be extremely frustrating for all of us um, and difficult, um, I think that's what God is teaching through his word tonight. If you would take your Bibles, let's read Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what she had decreed, what he had decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint a Officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Ashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was beautiful, lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree was heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he, did, he readily gave beauty preparations to her, besides her allowance. Then seven choice maiden, maid servants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai placed paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go into King, ne King Ahasuerus. After she had completed twelve months' preparation according to the regulation for the women, for thus were the days of their preparation appointed, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shashgaz the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the 
turn came for Esther, she, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the province and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gates. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai, as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther and Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your sovereign control in the events and the circumstances of our life, placing us in positions that uh, may seem daunting, may seem fearful, and yet you have placed us there to accomplish your good pleasure. We pray that we would be encouraged and that we would be challenged to submit to you and to live faithfully before you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you remember, chapter 1 portrays King Ahasuerus as the all-powerful ruler who provides this amazing banquet, and he just has this great power, or at least he thinks he does. The one thing that the text tells us he can't have is a wife who will submit to him and follow his commands. Other than that, it's pictured as if he has all the power anyone could ever want. And you open up to chapter 2, and he has been denied the one thing he wants, and he has the nerve to, you know, tell all the men of his country, you guys, you really need to, like, step it up and control your households and tell your wives to fall in line, when he can't even do it with his own wife. And now you open up to chapter 2, and what is he doing? This all-powerful king is seeking advice. He's seeking advice, and he, he wants his advisors to tell him what to do, how to go about his predicament. Because as he's looking at the situation and some time has passed, he's beginning to regret, it appears, his decision about Vashti. Look at verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. It's like, oh no. What have I done? I don't really like that idea anymore. Now I don't have a queen. And it's been a couple of years. And he's, you know, he's had some time to mellow out and to think about his decision. And now he's like, this is, this is a true predicament. Every king should have a queen by his side. And I don't have one. 
And so as he's contemplating this, he must have been talking about it, or maybe his servants saw that he was concerned, and they come and they ask him what's going on. And after he tells them about his regret, his concern, what does he do? He seeks counsel, and his servants come, and they tell him, Hey, we've got this great idea. Verse 2, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom. They may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashton. So this, this all-powerful king who thinks he's got everything under his control doesn't have enough wisdom to figure out how to, you know, find a good wife. And... I mean, you could go into, you know, describing the qualifications for this wife. I mean, the qualifications are really poor. Just, you don't marry somebody based on their looks. That's like a nice bonus, but that's not why you marry somebody. And so he's seeking counsel, and his plans are made to appoint a new queen. And he adopts this idea, and once again, his, his will is guided by... By his servants, people that God has placed in his circle of influence. It's very similar to what happens in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's having this great party, and he says, we should do this. So the servants are all like, yeah, this is great. And when it doesn't happen, what happens? His servants are all clamoring for power and prestige as well. And they influence his decision, and now he regrets it. The powerful king who loomed large is not actually guiding this ship. Someone else is. And so he seeks his counsel, he gets his counsel, and he decides he's going to follow through with this new plan. I think that the, the next section, verses 5 all the way through like verse um, 18, is really talking about God's placement and how God orchestrates and puts people where he wants them to accomplish his purposes. The text moves immediately from there into a couple of verses that are just like, oh, incidental facts that you know you didn't really know. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain man. It's it's very casual, almost as if like it was on accident. It's not on accident. I think the text is trying to be facetious in this manner. There's a certain man. He's a Jew. His name was Mordecai, the son of Jair. And they, they tell us his genealogy. This is who the guy is. He's a Benjamite. And he was carried away by King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he had also brought up Hadassah, who was Esther, because her mom and dad died. And, and you think about all the difficult circumstances, the trials that Mordecai has faced, the trials that Esther has faced, in getting to this point in history. And, and God orchestrated all those events. It didn't catch God by surprise that one day Mordecai was carried off away from his homeland. It doesn't catch God by surprise that Esther doesn't have a mother and father and is cared for and raised by Mordecai. All this is God orchestrating the events and the 
the situations of their life and the trials that have come up in such a way to accomplish his good pleasure. And so God places Mordecai, he places Esther right there at the right place and at the right time. And as the story continues to unfold, what happens? The, tell, the story tells us Esther was beautiful and as a result of her beauty, when the king's decree goes out, what happens? She is naturally rounded up with all the other beautiful women and taken to go be prepared to be presented to the king. And as she goes and she sits there and she's prepared, what happens? Look at verse 8. The decree went out. Many young women were gathered at Shushan. The Esther also was taken to the palace into the care of Haggai the custodian of the women. And what happens? You, you begin a series of this very similar phrase that's repeated a couple of times throughout this text. I think it's repeated three times throughout this text. That Esther finds or is pleasing to somebody. Now the young woman pleased him, that is Haggai, the guy who's watching over all these young women who are coming into the castle, and he takes a liking to her. He he favors her, and he decides that he is going to do his best to see that she is successful. And it's not like he can speed up the 12 months of actual preparation, because, you know, there's laws about, you know, you got to have six months of this and then six months of that before you can finally go and see the king. But he can ensure that the whole process starts quicker, that the process is done in such a way that she is trained and prepared better than the other women. I think that that's what the text is emphasizing. He takes a liking to her. Once again, you, you've seen the trial, you've seen the difficulty that God has placed her through, I believe, preparing her, equipping her for other trials. We also see God is working and caring for her as she goes into this situation. Um, now, uh, verse 9. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her, besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her from her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. And so God is, once again, placing her in a position where she is found finding favor with people who have influence, who have control, who can help her to do something that God has in mind. But the text doesn't really even tell us what the tragedy is. right? This is all kind of the backstory. Because we don't get to the, why is all this even important until later on. When all of a sudden you're like, oh wow. There's somebody who has it out for the whole Jewish people, and he's trying to kill them all. But God has been working even prior to these events taking place to preserve and to care for his chosen people. And so Esther finds favor in Haggai's eyes, and she submits to him. The text goes on, and it tells us about how all this takes place. She doesn't tell who she is. Mordecai is watching over her, caring for her making sure that she is doing well. And then the text moves on and it tells us all these details about exactly what all this looked like. 
Each woman was prepared for six months with one setting and one preparation uh, with oil and myrrh and then another six months with perfumes and preparation for beautifying women. And then once all this was done, the woman was allowed to choose one item from this house of women to take in with her to see the king. And you can imagine, if you were one of these women, it's, it's very likely that you're going to effectively be a widow for the rest of your life because if the king doesn't remember you, you go off and live in this house all by yourself. Well, not by yourself, but with the other women and really have a kind of boring life the rest of your life. You're nobody. Your name isn't remembered, but you're not allowed to leave. And so a lot of these women, they go in and they see what they like and they take it. And yet, that's not what Esther is going to do. So Esther comes and she submits once again, just like she submitted to Mordecai. She's followed his guidance. She submits to Haggai's instruction in verse 50. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Once again, you have this idea that she is finding pleasure. People are finding pleasure in her. People like what they see. Why? I think because God is the one who is leading this, about, who is allowing her to find favor with those that she's encountering. So she finds favor with all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Kebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in, the sight, in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the province and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. Once again, you have the king being portrayed as all-powerful. He's rich. He's wealthy. He's got the power to just simply proclaim it, and this lady is queen. He's got the ability to just say it, and it's a national holiday. Wouldn't that be nice if he could just make national holidays and actually be able to provide for people when you declare a national holiday and give generous gifts as is fitting for a royal king. Once again, the text builds up King Ahasuerus as if he is something truly great, something truly fantastic. And yet the text is going to once again crumble that idea that King Ahasuerus is not nearly as powerful as he thinks he is. He's not nearly as in control of the circumstances of his life. So Esther submits herself to the guidance of Ahasuerus, and Ahasuerus then chooses her as queen. But the text doesn't stop there. A lot of people think that there's this big divide from verse 18, and that verses 19 and following begin the next idea. I really think that verses 19 through 23 conclude this idea. What's happening? The king is still playing catch-up. He doesn't get it. He doesn't. He thinks he's all-powerful. He thinks he's all-wealthy. He thinks he's in control. He thinks he is sovereign, but he's not. And yet God has placed people in his life who can guide 
and protect him. And so the king is learning still, being reminded once again, we are being reminded as we watch, that this king who thinks he's so powerful, that thinks he's so great, is not really. Once again, the king gathers a second group of women. The commentators debate back and forth as to what exactly this is referring to. It could be that there is a continual finding of a new harem because the king is just that um, worldly. And so he's continually getting a new group of women. And then after he's done, he finds another group. That's probably what is being communicated here. And so the second group of women are being gathered, and they are the eunuchs who are taking care of him. And some of these eunuchs, for some reason, have it out for the king. And they are planning to kill the king. Mordecai is sitting at the gate. He has found a position of authority to some degree. And she is still following his guidance and still following his instruction. Verse uh, 20. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she had brought, as she was brought up by him. Then the text moves on, and as the text moves on, it tells us that there is something that is going up behind the scenes that this all-powerful king that thinks he is just so great that he can use people as he sees fit and as he desires, whenever he desires, doesn't know is happening. And all the power that he thinks he has could be taken away from him like that. Because these two men want to kill him. And Mordecai is sitting in the gate. He's one of the councilmen, not as high up as others, but he's one of the men that sits at the gate Two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And Mordecai learns about the plot, and what does he do? He tells Esther, and Esther then relays the message to the king. The king finds out, he does additional research, and he finds out, yes indeed, I am not nearly as powerful as I think I am. Why? Because it's not the king who is orchestrating events and people and places to accomplish his good pleasure. Instead, God is the one who is orchestrating the events and the situations of life to accomplish his good pleasure. And so Mordecai uncovers a plot against the king. And the powerful king is informed of a plot that he missed completely. The text builds up King Ahasuerus. It makes him appear like he is all-powerful. He has money. He has power. He has women. What more does a king typically want? Nothing. And yet, if it weren't for God caring for him and placing people in his life, we'd have died. And then the text is, I believe, teaching you and I that God orchestrates the events of our lives. And he does what he pleases to accomplish his good will. So in conclusion, I think that these are a few theological ideas that the text then teaches us. And then based upon those, I think we can then say, okay, this is what the text is teaching us about God, about how we relate to God, 
So I need to do something about that truth. It's not enough to just know the truth and to appreciate the truth. The truth must lead us to visible, concrete action this week. Humans are not as powerful as they assume. King Ahasuerus still doesn't get this. He doesn't. Chapter 1 shows us this powerful king who's brought down to a, a shell of the man that he thought he was. Chapter, chapter 2 does the same thing once again. He could have lost his life but for Mordecai uncovering the plot and informing him. You and I are not as powerful as we think we are. Whether it be in our home life, in our workplace, in our recreation, we think that we are far more powerful than we are. I think that as we contemplate the story of Esther, we should walk away going, I am not as powerful as I believe I am. And instead of that, God places us in our trials to accomplish his purposes. Think of the trials and the difficulties that Mordecai experienced so that God could use him as he did in King Ahasuerus' palace. I, I don't think any of those trials and difficulties that he went through were things that he looked back on his life and he goes, I'm so glad I was taken out of my homeland and brought here to be a servant of a foreign king. A foreign king who so desperately lives against God's plan for how life should go. Same thing for Esther. Esther's, I mean, she's queen, but I mean, nobody wants to be queen to King Ahasuerus. The, the text's painting, the picture that we have of King Ahasuerus, is not the type of person that you want to marry. This guy is pictured as really quite stupid, actually. He's, he's never making decisions himself, and every time he seeks counsel, his decisions are bad. And, and so God places people in the trials that he puts them in, and he uses that to accomplish his good purposes. The powerful are not as powerful as they believe. And, and so as we think about these ideas, where do you and I go for counsel. We, we think that we are wise, we think that we are powerful, we think that we have a pretty good grasp of life and what's going on. And the temptation is that you and I would go to ourselves or other people that we view as wise in a worldly way and ask for counsel, ask for wisdom. And yet if I can't orchestrate the events of my life you know, I write up a menu for the week so we know what we're going to eat. But, you know, life changed yesterday. And while it wasn't bad, you know, somebody brought us a meal. And so we didn't make the menu item that we planned for, you know, actually like the whole menu was like a day off the whole week, okay? Our plans are, are temporary. It's good to have plans. But, like, I couldn't even, you know, like, plan out exactly what meal I was going to have this week. I, mean, I was always a day behind. And now my, my chicken pot pie was supposed to be Friday night, 
and it won't be until I don't even know what day. Okay? <laughs> we are not as powerful as we think we are. It's, it's a funny illustration, I get that, but where do you go for guidance? Where do you go for counsel? We can't even control what meals we have. Why would we think that we can go to ourselves for guidance and counsel when God is the one who is sovereign? God is the one who's orchestrating the events of our lives. And he has provided us his counsel in scripture. Where else could we go? Why else would we go somewhere else? We go to the Lord for counsel. We go to the Lord for guidance. Why? Because he is sovereign and he has written the book on how to do life and to do life with great abundance and joy. We seek the Lord's counsel, not our own. In addition, I think we are to rejoice in God's placement. And that can be really difficult as you go through trials. You know, a lot of the trials that we go through are far worse than, you know, what meal we end up eating what day of the week, right? And as, as you go through those trials, it's difficult to rejoice. And yet, as I think about the song that we sang last, The Love of God, and you I've referenced the story before, but one of the one of the part of that song was written by somebody who was in an insane asylum, and they moved out one of the beds, and etched on the wall was one of those choruses from that song. And as the the person who saw it saw it, he's like, "Wow, this is such rich lyric." Somebody who was in the insane asylum could write something so beautiful, he went and he finished out the rest of the song. The person who was in that predicament understood the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God. And he meditated upon the love of God and the care of God in the midst of that trial. And as you and I go through the trials and the difficulties of this life, we are to rejoice in those trials. Why? Not because the trials are great, but because in the midst of the trial, we know that our God is great. In addition to all that, we, we choose then to submit ourselves to God's plan. Even when we don't understand the reasons behind his plan. Because, let's be honest, there are many times that God's word seems to be, you know, contrary to what we would have chosen. It's hard to explain. Why Why does God say, don't do this or don't do that? It would seem like it would be easier for him to just, you know, say, I don't really care about this area of your life. It's okay. Because God doesn't really understand the circumstances and the difficulties of my particular life. And if he understood all that, you know, maybe he would change it. Easy for us to think that way. And yet God has a grasp on our lives that is far better than ours and he calls upon us to walk by faith to trust him and to live in submission and obedience to his plan and then finally i think that the story of esther calls upon you and i to be encouraged in god's sovereignty and in god's control of the events and the trials and difficulties that we face because you know mordecai could have looked at this a couple years before all this started to happen and I'm like, this is a really bad set of circumstances. I get taken from my home. My family members die. I'm stuck with their daughter to care for, raise up, you know. 
But God uses all that to accomplish his purposes. And, and the same thing is true in the difficulties and trials of your life that are present, the difficulties and trials that will come. God is using those to accomplish his purposes. And because we know our God and we know that he's using these things to accomplish his purposes for his honor and glory, we can be encouraged and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for your control over the events of our lives. We pray that we would be willing to seek you for counsel, seek you for wisdom. We pray that we would rejoice in and submit to you as we go through various trials that you bring us through. Thank you for who you are. We pray that we would be able to encourage one another and that we would serve you faithfully this coming week. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.